Hello, and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Grant Kaplan. Grant comes to us from St. Louis University, where he's the Staber Chair and Professor of Theology. He's written a book called Faith and Reason Through Christian History, a theological essay. This book is wide-ranging, from the New Testament all the way down to the postmodern era, and incisive in the way he treats each of the people he uses as exemplars. It's clearly written, it's orienting, and it's a delightful and fun book to read. Despite running over 300 pages, it's a kind of book you can read quickly because it's difficult to put down. Grant's engaging style and ability to treat each of his exemplars briefly, succinctly, and yet without either oversimplifying or overcomplicating their thought makes this book well worth reading. So today we're going to talk to Grant and uh, talk to him about this book. Hope you enjoy. Here's Grant Kaplan. Welcome, uh, Grant, and thank you so much for coming on to talk about your book with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. I uh, want to start just by saying again for the listening audience, the book here is Faith and Reason Through Christian History, a theological essay from Catholic University Press. And this book is really extraordinary, both for its scope and for the accomplishment uh, of for how you pulled it off, basically. Uh, we, we have parts on pre-modern Christianity, modern theology, going through the 19th century, Reformation of the 19th century, and then the 20th century and beyond. So we're ranging from the New Testament all the way through postmodern uh, theologians of the 20th and 21st century with discussions of exemplars of each of these periods in each of the chapters. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm glad you made it all the way through. Yeah, yeah I did. <laughs> I did. And I, I found it um, very readable uh, despite the length, which, you know, it's a substantial book and the, the breadth. It was extremely engaging so much that I had a hard time putting it down. So, and I would just say one more bit of pay on to it. Um, it's really helpful to have uh, a orientation. And a book like this provides, I'm sure, in every article that you wrote or every section that you wrote, you felt deeply what you couldn't say or what you weren't saying, uh, what you would like to add. But it, I found it extremely helpful for, say, let's look at the scope of faith and reason throughout all of this history, and not only for that topic, but for just an orientation to some major players through 2000 years and some orientation to debates about them in recent times that uh, for someone like me who did not study all of this in a graduate school level in this kind of way was extremely helpful as an orientation for stuff I've been trying to sort out for a long time. So thank you. Why this book? Like, uh, how did you come to say, I'm going to, I'm going to do this project. This is a very difficult, unusual kind of project. What led to it? That's a good, it's an easy answer. It's just not a very inspiring answer. And the answer is that someone asked me to write it. <laughs> and that that task of uh, thinking about how to write it, it was, um, you know, I wasn't quite sure. And then I ta taught an undergraduate class on this to basically go through some of the primary texts and begin to think about kind of telling a story about it. Yeah. And I thought I would write the book much more quickly than I did. And in part, it was uh, really struggling to kind of um, pull a few narrative threads through and also just to 
kind of even though it was a little bit longer than originally planned to really limit the length which meant cutting out a lot of things so in the course of writing it i had to include more people than i thought but then i also had to cut back on certain beloved figures i would have really wanted to talk about but just couldn't figure out how to kind of tell that story cleanly without you know in some way breaking so the original plan was just to have one chapter on the 20th century and i ended up writing three in that section you know 20th century and beyond and it was yeah it felt like it was you know necessary i didn't know how to tell without doing that but also i couldn't have written any more and held it together so someone asked you to, to to write it, but what what gave you the sort of juice, the inspiration on this topic, on faith and reason? This is like an important thing for to be thinking about uh, for so long. Yeah. So I I mean, in general, I work in the areas of like fundamental theology, so faith and reason, reason and revelation, nature and grace, and this is a you know a key kind of um, light motif or a sort of you know a chord in theological history is faith and reason. And it's almost like, well, how people land on this question of how faith relates to reason or reason relates to faith says a lot about kind of how they think about other theological things. It both allows and permits and also restricts what can be said in other areas. I mean, I was always drawn to theologians and to theological arguments that touched the kind of nerve line of faith and reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. So I wanted to uh, walk through some of the content of this book. Obviously, there's a, a lot here, but um, I wanted to, to talk to you about, and I think would be engaging for anyone. Uh, the first thing was, I, I thought I would start by asking uh, you to orient us to the relationship between faith and reason for pre-moderns, patristics, and e even before the Middle Ages, um, that where you talk about this uh, in contrast to the sort of realms of faith and knowledge uh, post-Kant, you talk about knowledge and faith both as forms of participation in the divine mind. This might be you know, a different way of thinking about this topic altogether that actually is shared by a lot of people who are even arguing against each other in the pre-modern time. Uh, they still have this kind of assumption. Could you go into what you mean by the participation model? The pre-modern authors, when, they, when they're talking about faith and reason, you could start by what they mean by reason. And so, they're, they're not all saying the same thing about this relationship. I mean, you have differences between the East and West and the early medieval and the more fourth, fourth century. And then even there's a difference between sort of pre-councils, pre-fourth century councils and post-fourth century councils. So I don't want to lump them all together. But if I had to lump them all together, I'd say this, that reason is understood not as a kind of autonomous realm of operation that's strictly natural and has nothing to do with God, but rather reason is already a kind of graced, elevated activity, a kind of participation in the divine mind mm -hmm. that uh, uh, does not leave us kind of cut off from God. And then faith is like a higher accent or a higher level 
of this participation in the mind of God. And then once you get to the modern period, people like uh, Spinoza and Kant and afterwards, then they think of reason as this entirely human, autonomous activity. And this in itself creates a kind of, it creates a bigger sort of gap between faith and reason. It's one of the problems as a modern reader of the pre-moderns is not to impose this modern understanding of reason on the pre-moderns, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. People get the big pro- the big person where people stumble is Anselm. Yeah. And they they really struggle with Anselm. And it's like, well, how is he making this whole argument and not appealing to scripture? And he's not talking about Christ when he's doing the arguments for the existence of God. And once you kind of read him in the right register as a pre-modern thinker and not impose kind of Spinozist uh, categories on him about what reason is, then you can see how he is doing what he says, which is an operation of faith-seeking understanding. Yes, yes, that's really good. You you point this out both in your treatment of Anselm and in the way you talk about Bart. You emphasize that Bart, although he's kind of known for a slightly more fideistic, or, or a lot more fideistic, depending on um, where you're coming from, approach. He surprisingly, for modern's understanding of Anselm, loves Anselm. So why is that? Why does Bart um, see himself continuing Anselm's project? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, Bart is basically you know, rewrites this small book on Anselm and says very interesting things in there about the relationship between faith and reason. And he, you know, picks up on this faith-seeking understanding formula in Anselm and gets a lot of mileage out of it himself and sees himself in a kind of Anselmian tradition, which is interesting to think about because normally the way we're taught Karl Barth is not to think of him that way. And in, in general, in the kind of more fideistic authors from Luther to Kierkegaard to Barth, who, you know, not coincidentally are all Protestant, having studied them and read them carefully enough with, you know, Protestant theologians, I I kind of wanted to give a nuance to them that especially for a Catholic audience, people aren't used to hearing. Yes. And... And so that was a very important task for me. And Bart's Anselm book w- was a way to kind of show that how that worked in Bart, how he was not simply a fideist. There was a kind of r- rational argument, sort of humming along with the these claims that you know do are s- sort of strikingly um, fideistic. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yes, I, something I really appreciate about the book is um, you show the controversies and 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 talk about some of the ways that people have uh, understood writers and uh, even how sometimes their later uh, disciples create a sort of system. But um, you are very generous to most people that you're writing about, if not all of them, um, throughout this whole thing. Where you point out. Um, even with Anselm, that his atonement theory is seen by some as as a major pastoral problem, but you try to situate it within what you've done before on how he's actually approaching all this with faith leading 
to understanding. Yeah. So I, I appreciated that um, that kind of the thing you do to retrieve all of these people uh, in the most generous way possible. I wanted to ask you about a, a, another person who is in that section with Anselm, uh, Peter Abelard. So he, uh, Abelard famously goes full on uh, with reason and... This is a sort of shock in the context in which he's writing, and he gets some strong response from St. Bernard, the patron of the school, and um, also from Hugh of St. Victor and Peter Lombard, as you portray it. So could you, what's, what's Abelard up to, and uh, what do you like about him? Well, I mean, he, he wants to push this dialectical method, which is a kind of rational method, as far as he can, and what is interesting about him is that he kind of he creates a crisis that he wants dialectic to solve and so in his you know in his sort of book sick at non yes and no he lines up different authorities on certain questions who appear to be saying contradictory things about a number of theological questions the nature of god the trinity the sacraments um, all kinds of questions questions of salvation. This is a problem that a lot of, you know, smart Christians have or curious Christians have just from reading the Bible. Well, what what's happening here and why the order of the miracles in this way in one book and different in another? And a lot of times people have, you know, grow in a faith community where they've never really asked about that. And so Abelard sort of asks that of the whole tradition and then wants to use this dialectical method to solve these problems or to just point out the tensions there. And so he ends up being a kind of pain <laughs> for the environment that he's in. And he's, a, a, you know, an annoying figure in a number of ways and, uh, you know, not a it's just not a commendable person in a lot of ways, especially with his famous romantic relationship. But he forces theology to sort of up its game. And you see that with the different responses. And um, yeah, and so St. Bernard obviously has a response. I, I thought um, originally the plan was to have Bernard play a larger role, but then I kind of thought that through you know, Lombard and Hugh of St. Victor, the story could be told a little bit more about how their response to Abelard, in fact, kind of advances theology and uh, creates the the period of scholastic theology as we know it. Yeah, I really liked that. You pointed out how Hugh sort of brings in all of the humanistic disciplines and shows how they uh, work together within a theological purview and the Lombard in his sentences sort of sets the groundwork for the rest of medieval thinking. And right? so I I'm less from, well, I actually am not very familiar with either of these thinkers, but um, for Hugh St. Victor, can you, can you say a little bit about his book that you talked about and, and what his project was uh, as he thought through the disciplines of his time? Yeah. So he writes a book called the Didascalion. And in it, he wants to kind of connect the, uh, the different disciplines, including like what he calls the mechanical arts, I think. And so this would be like engineering or something. Mm -hmm. And 
the amazing thing about the book is how kind of relevant it is to today. And I almost wish when there's like these crises of the university or something, it's just, I want university re, uh, administrators to read Hugh of St. Victor's Didascalion to kind of put all this stuff together. And, um, you know, you get this real, uh, you know, uh, push towards scholasticism and dialectic and rationality and numerous authors are pointing out in this time well we can't forget that theology has something to do with prayer <laughs> and and so you get this kind of division in 20th century theology as well and contemporary theology where a lot of times people go into theology thinking oh well this is like you know going to help my faith life or whatever and then the way some theology is written is so dry, it's unconnected with personal experience, it's abstract, and it's, you know, difficult and jargony, and that uh, they experience theology as a kind of discipline that needs to be saved from itself. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I don't, think theology should just be an exercise in kind of, you know, feeling good our, about ourselves and uh, feeling something warm and fuzzy that makes you want to love Jesus more. But the critique is a fair one, and you see it repeat in the history of theology. I mean, the pietists have the same kind of complaint in the 17th century. And it was interesting to kind of identify this already in, you know, the 12th and 13th century. I really enjoyed this chapter on the High Middle Ages where you, you deal with uh, Thomas and Bonaventure and then uh, sort of refer to the Dominican and Franciscan modes that come out of that um, period. Uh, and I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more about that. So you uh, read them as complementary and not as at odds with each other, Thomas and Bonaventure, that is. And um, show how Bonaventure is scholastic and Thomas is mystical. So they both have that ability to go in those directions. Um, and of course, I'm doing a very cursory um, summary of what you talk about with both of them. You do extensive treatments of both of them. But I wanted to, to ask you just to, to talk about um, Thomas and Bonaventure in relationship to each other, how people perceive the the debate between them or the difference between them and then how you sort of brought that together as a more complimentary um, story that you told. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit tricky to untangle because you have the Dominican tradition and most, most people who've been kind of within the Catholic theological realm, they have, oh, well, we don't really know that much about St. Dominic. He started the order, fine, whatever. But then you get you know, you get Aquinas and he's the formative figure. You obviously get other Dominicans, you know, before him and along the way, but Albert the Great being, of course, one of the most influential. But yeah, it's this sort of heady scholastic tradition. We're the ones who are serious academic types. And then Francis, well, Francis plays a much larger 
role in our, you know, collective imagination. And he's in the garden and he loves the birds and he's a person of prayer and they care about poverty and, uh, you know, and, and then it's like, well, first of all, have you read uh, Scotus and Occam? I mean, they seem to be about as densely scholastic and rationalistic as you could possibly imagine. Yes. I mean, they're relentless logic choppers. So what does it, you know, already it kind of breaks down pretty quickly, uh, this stereotype. And then I remember, you know, thinking, oh, well, Bonaventure, it'd be nice to teach some Bonaventure. And I remember reading Journey of the Mind to God, and this is great. And then, you know, I picked up, um, I forget what it was, some kind of general volume by him that like a cheap thing that's accessible. And it was so dense and complicated. And it's like, oh, this is uh, not the picture that you imagine. And it's even like Bonaventure is a mystical theologian. Well, if you only read Journey of the Mind to God, he certainly is that. But unfortunately, he wrote a lot of other things and uh, and they don't quite fit into this category. So I all the way back when I did my comprehensive exams for graduate school, I wrote uh, a question on Thomas and Bonaventure and saw, tried to view, view them as complementary. And, you know, the people on the panel, they didn't really like this. And it's like, but he says this here. And so this is kind of it's like, okay, I get that. I get that there are some differences, but I sort of feel like we go with such a pre preconception of how different they are, that if you just block that out to the extent that you can and read them, you know, they are more complementary and they're both engaged in the same kind of activity. and you know, just because Aquinas has a more kind of, I don't even want to say rational, but a certain sort of sort of Aristotelian bent and Bonaventure is in a way the more Augustinian. It doesn't mean that Bonaventure didn't spend a lot of time reading Aristotle or that Thomas was not in a real way that doesn't need to be overly qualified, an Augustinian. And yeah. so um, I kind of started from that presupposition and I wanted to write the chapter in a way that if a Dominican were reading this in seminary formation or in formation for the priesthood, they would have, a, you know, a kind of appreciation for Bonaventure that they might not otherwise have and vice versa for someone in the Franciscan tradition. That's great. That's great. When it comes to specifically Bonaventure, could you say a word about what his approach to faith and reason looks like? And then, uh, and this is, takes us a little bit outside of what you wrote about in your book, but as a matter of curiosity, why was Bonaventure so important for some of the resourcement theologians like Baltazar, even Ratzinger, who did his dissertation on him, um, who were especially of that ilk to like not try to reuse Thomas, but to try to retrieve other parts of the tradition to imagine Christian theology in the 20th century. And yet they go to Bonaventure, who I, I agree, having read his only his uh, commentary on John, is still has very scholastic vibes to me. So why what, what's he about? And then why is he important for uh, these later theologians? Well, he's almost an exact contemporary with with Thomas. I think they die, they both die in the same year of 1274. Bonaventure, I think, was born four years earlier. And uh, so they have 
similar experiences at the University of Paris is this sort of like, you know, I think I described it as the book is almost like a Silicon Valley where it's like you just have to go there. And that's what the University of Paris was. And Bonaventure was very concerned about the formation of the Franciscans at Paris and whether or not they were getting a sufficiently, you know, spiritual, uh, prayerful formation. And so even within his own theology, there's a kind of, it's a little bit subtle, but a turn. And so he writes this short little book on the reduction of the arts to theology, where he says, every academic discipline, you're kind of missing the point if you don't see how it's all part of creation. Mm -hmm. And that as part of creation, it therefore is going back to our earlier conversation, you know, participating in it in some sense. Hmm. So if you are a botanist or something, you're studying a plant or a tree, you can't understand what a tree is mm -hmm. unless you see it as part of God's creation. Otherwise, your, your knowledge of your own field is insufficient. So one way to put this is that with, you know, a kind of Aristotelian understanding of phusis or nature, it is more of like an enclosed, not entirely enclosed, but more of an enclosed uh, reality. And then with Bonaventure, he's, he is more of an Augustinian in that everything is, you know, participating in God and in the life of God. And therefore, he, he, this short little book is really an amazing thing. Again, it's something that would be wonderful to use in a kind of introductory textbook for students who are in their first semester of a university to understand what a university is. And to answer your second question, I mean, the retrieval of Bonaventure, it's, it's just um, the Catholic theological tradition, like the Catholic liturgical tradition, has always been richer and more diverse than people remember it as being. And specifically with regard to the Western theological tradition, you know, there are more than one way to be a Catholic theologian, you know, beyond just Thomism. And Thomism became so dominant after Eterni Patris in the 1870s, and then with the uh, uh, command that, you know, Aquinas be taught in seminary formation. And specifically, they were less concerned with Aquinas's theology and more concerned that his philosophy be taught. Yeah. And so Aquinas got distorted through that process, who was almost became like a philosopher who had things to say about God rather than a Christian theologian. And, uh, and that, um, entire, you know, theological traditions and schools of theology were lost. Yeah. And so Ratzinger found Bonaventure extremely helpful and specifically he was interested in Bonaventure's theology of history and mm. connecting that to Augustine's City of God and a certain kind of eschatological um, vision or eschatological theology. And so um, he wrote that second dissertation, I, I think, on on Bonaventure, part of which was actually rejected as unsound because the environment he was in was basically like, well, if it's not Thomist, it's not Catholic. 
I want to go back now and talk to you about uh, a figure important for all of these people, as we've mentioned, and important for later uh, history as well, which is uh, Augustine. So could you say a bit about Augustine's view of faith and reason? In particular, I'm interested in the relationship between the will and the intellect in Augustine. Yeah, very good. I mean, Augustine um, was this hugely intellectual person who was extremely gifted and talented, and he cared deeply about the truth and thought that if he just thought and reasoned hard enough, he would get the solution to these different answers. And so his autobiography, The Confessions, charts this journey that he goes on. And he gets to the end in book seven, and he realizes, well, I believe through reading the Platonists, all the Christian claims about God there's no hindrance to me becoming a Christian. There's not like an intellectual, you know, how people have a hindrance, like, well, I would believe in Christianity, but how do you reconcile evolution in the Bible? And then say, like, oh, well, that can be reconciled now that, uh, you know, there's nothing blocking there. Well, that happens to Augustine intellectually, but then he finds that his own will will not let him be, he calls it a divided will, will not let him make the kind of moral change that he needs to make, which is basically giving up his concubine and his sexual habits. And so what this reveals to him is that he's not just an intellect and the human being is not just an intellectual or rational being, but is also uh, a being that uh, has a will and the will, so to speak, has a mind of its own. And so what needs to happen is really in some ways a kind of imaginative breakthrough. And I think this is kind of helpful for a lot of people, yeah, who don't believe in, in God or Christianity or Christ, but the, the, the problem is not on an intellectual level, but it's on a volitional level. It's on the level of the will. And so what needs to happen is some kind of imaginative breakthrough. And this is what happens when he he re recalls the lives of the saints and the holy uh, virgins and martyrs. And then he has this vision of Lady Continence who comes and uh, uh, is uh, imagined as, you know, this person who uh, he can see what this new life will be. He can see that a, a life of, of chastity and celibacy. Mm -hmm. Other people have done it, and so he can do it. There's like exemplars, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so it causes him to kind of reorient the way the will and the reason operate as kind of faculties of the soul would be the old, old language. So rather than reason kind of pulling everything along and the will almost being like, tugged along by reason, he comes to see the will as having a much larger role in how we uh, we live. And this is a kind of reversal of the platonic idea that if you know the truth, you will do the truth. Dustin says, well, you know, that's not quite, it didn't quite fit with my own personal experience. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. So um, there is a a trajectory with Augustine in many different directions, of course, but I wanted to talk about a trajectory that privileges the will over the intellect um, 
uh, within several exemplars that I noticed through your your treatment, which is first and importantly, I wanted to ask about SCOTUS. So SCOTUS uh, seems to use some of this Augustinian kind of thinking only to make the point against some other kind of Augustinian thinking that for him, for Scotus, that is, faith is is not uh, a part of a speculative reason, but only a part of practical reasoning, uh, because it's not necessary because it's contingent. So, which I think sort of prefigures some modern thinking in some ways. So, can you talk about Scotus and what he's doing there, how it relates to Augustine, or and how it sort of may um, may or may not foreshadow Kant and so on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a a pretty sharp reading, a perceptive reading on your part. I mean, Scotus, uh, yeah, he does. um, He does make things turn in this practical direction in the most abstract theoretical way possible. When in 1 John, it says God is love. Scotus really takes this to mean that the charity should have an exalted place in how we kind of order things theologically and charity is rooted in the will. I mean, Aquinas would have said the same thing about charity. Um, I think he calls it effectively willing the good of the other. So it's not emotive primarily, it's volitional. And if we really tug on this insight hard enough, then we are going to push it to the absolute limits that it can go and say things that are stronger than the tradition has said them henceforth. So even though he is a Franciscan in his writing, you know, a generation or so, about 25 years after Bonaventure dies, and Bonaventure was died, I think he was head of the Franciscan order when he died. He's really taking things very quickly in a direction that they wouldn't have gone otherwise. And the impact that he has, in a way, you could say that Scotus is the most impactful Franciscan theologian in history, even though now Bonaventure is seen as the you know leading light next to Aquinas. Scotus historically had you know cr- created a school pretty quickly of followers that you know, but was was more lasting and impactful than Bonaventure's school. And Aquinas isn't the dominant theologian, you know, until really the 16th century. So I'd say Scotism does have a very formative impact on the history of theology. And it does, you know, get us to these places and lead to some uh, kind of unfortunate modern formulations about faith and reason. When we come to the beginnings of a modern, early modern era, where we're, we're dealing with people, you have a, a great section on the Reformation that we've talked about, where you are a little more generous with your approach to Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon than uh, a Catholic might be accustomed to. You also deal with the figure of Erasmus, who is um, a Catholic, uh, but also uh, is pushing against the scholasticism of his time and uh, going back to sort of learning biblical languages and recovering uh, older texts and so forth and doing a very different style of um, theology than had flourished in the scholastic period. How, how do you see um, Erasmus in particular in this chapter as uh, thinking about reason and faith? And how do you see him 
in relationship to someone like you were talking about earlier, he was St. Victor, who has a similar humanistic impulse, but in a different mode. Yeah, I mean, the main thing with Erasmus is that humanistic turn and what he does for New Testament studies and, um, you know, creating this kind of what John O'Malley talks about, the four cultures of the West and the, the dominant cultures of the scholastic culture and the, the humanistic culture, the humanist culture. Erasmus is this amazing figure. He's, uh, you know, can be a real delight to read and he's vexing because there's that famous slide, you know, um, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched or something and it wouldn't have been possible without Erasmus. Yeah, there's always a kind of... Uh, skepticism about Erasmus among Catholics, but he was very effective at pointing out a lot of scholastic excess. And he does this in a hilarious manner in a book like In Praise of Folly. And um, he really sort of undermines a lot of the authority that the universities had where scholasticism was the dominant and presupposed way of thinking and doing theology. And when we come to the Reformation figures, you lay out how someone like Calvin, for instance, sees the the reasoning faculties as being sort of impaired at a lot of levels. And this doctrine, post-Lapsarian anthropology, that's like uh, the mind, the human mind is a car with its wheels falling off a little bit in, in every respect, and it's uh, engine faltering too. They're resisting something like natural theology where you could think about um, reason as leading on, on or participating in the divine mind, leading to some kind of understanding of God at some level, and saying that you can't climb the ladder of reason to know anything true about God because we're so impaired. But at the same time, faith needs reason um, for its explanation. Um, I kind of think of their view, and correct me if I'm wrong here, as more of a descending reason. If we have faith, reason can follow, reason can be a ladder going down from it uh, to explain it, to, to participate in, in what we know by only by faith. Say more about uh, how you perceive reason working within the reformers. Well, I like the metaphor that you used. I probably should have used that in the book or something. Mm -hmm. um, very good. Um, so I, I just say that, um, yeah, they're cautious about the use of reason because of its overuse in a kind of decadent late scholasticism. And so now Luther says all kinds of violent things that we remember, you know, um, or, you know, Aristotle's of the devil and reason is a whore and these kind of statements. But he also says other things very positive about reason. So it's a question of how do you, like Abelard had, had to do, how do you reconcile these different things that seem irreconcilable within Luther? And um, Calvin's a little bit more tempered and cautious than Luther. But yeah, the, the reformers, um, they put this caution about reason in a foundational way into their sort of theological projects in a way that makes it easier for their tradition to remember and recall this caution. Now, I mean, Melanchthon was there on the ground, so to speak. I mean, he joins Luther's cause in thinking like 1520 or 21 when he's like, um, you know, an undergraduate age. 
and he stays true loyal to the cause. And of course, he's in some ways more fundamental to Lutheranism than Luther, just because he was there at the Augsburg Confession, wrote a lot of that. But this is someone who's like translating Aristotle and putting out new editions of Aristotle. And so it's just so quickly the case that you realize that the Lutheran tradition, despite what Luther said, didn't see itself as restricted from pursuing reason and reading philosophy as one would otherwise get the impression. And uh, you get that all all through the reformers. And so just as in the Middle Ages, it's not a sort of unrelenting wave of scholastic after scholastic, logic chopper after logic chopper, but you have these people continually being like, wait a second, well, we need to integrate prayer and what kind of faith experience are people having? And Bonaventure and Hugh of St. Victor are asking these questions. And, and so there's a kind of recurrence, a pattern of remembering and forgetting. And so you get the same kind of thing in the reformers. It just sort of goes a, a certain direction. And, um, and that, you know, one, one might in a certain kind of Catholic formation have the impression otherwise that, um, you know, Protestant theology is just a kind of either or dialectic. And it's, you know, Luther begat Kierkegaard, begat, begat Karl Barth, begat bad postmodern fideism. And that's basically the story. And they can't hold, they can't synthesize faith and reason. And you can certainly tell that story if you want. It's just not at all historically accurate. And it's <laughs> all these other figures who had an enormously influential role on that tradition. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate that aspect of this work. Okay, so I want to ask about a later modern fellow now, uh, Pascal, who has, you know, is a Jansenist, so he's got some Augustinian leanings that resonate with someone like Luther. But he, um, he, I, I think, and, and the way I thought about with this latter metaphor was, as he writes in, in your portrayal, well, first of all, He's a mathematician, right? So he's um, he's participating actively in the work of extremely um, intense reasoning, but then sees reason as a maybe a ladder that can get us can start to bring us to a, a desire for God, a knowledge of God that knows itself to be incomplete, right? So that like um, it's not just that reason follows faith, it can precede faith, but it also leads us to needing faith. It can only be completed in faith. Is that correct? And what what do you think of Pascal's use of reason and how that like goes forward into someone like Blondel later on? Yeah, in a way there's a kind of Catholic fideistic strand, right? And so going back to our earlier thing, Oftentimes you hear Catholics say, well, we're the analogical thinkers, Protestants are the dialectical thinkers. So we think both and Catholic and Protestants think either or. Right. Well, in a way, that statement's already an either or statement. Mm-hmm. So I think <laughs> I stole this from Dennis Turner, but he he said for the Catholics, it's both both and and either or. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's good. And so that's good. <laughs> there is a kind of uh this fideistic strand within certainly Pascal and with the Jansenists, I mean, you know, the 
the line that one, uh, the Jesuit line about the Jansenists, oh, that's, that's just like bad Calvinist Catholicism. And people like Sean Blanchard have corrected that impression. But um, yeah, so Pascal, um, it, it's amazing because, you know, you would know him from the, uh, well, the computer language is named after him. Uh, and he was a very important and influential mathematician who had this powerful conversion experience and his sister was at the Port Royal Abbey, the kind of Jansenist stronghold outside of Paris. And he beautifully articulates through his, these pensées, which are just kind of collected papers that he had, some of the problems with um, the way people thought about reason and its relationship with God. And so he says, you know, the pr purpose of reason is to show the limits of reason. Mm -hmm. One of the ironies is that Pascal's wager is what most people know about what he thinks about God. And the wager is not at all a kind of faith thing. It's this purely kind of rational exercise of like betting odds. You know, if you were going to bet odds uh, that the smart gambling move would be to bet on God's existence, that is, it's nothing to do with any kind of leap of faith. Um, and so, uh, there's all kinds of paradoxes in Pascal, but he he beautifully encapsulates a tradition uh, and a kind of initiates a tradition that um, a lot of later thinkers like Blundell and others come back to, which is that, uh, you know, reason has limits and what the significant part of the life of faith is, is a kind of personal encounter. So you can't reason your way up to God um, taking kind of one step at a time, but instead it's about an encounter. It's about something that happens. And his famous note that he kept inside of his jacket that's included in the Ponsay is, you know, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of, I think, fire or forget the noun he uses, fire or lightning or something like that. And that was just simply to remind him that what matters ultimately is not some kind of abstract idea about whether there is a creator of the universe or not, or a sort of intelligent order of things, but the encounter of being forgiven of one's sins and uh, converted from a sinful way. And this is what matters. This is ultimately the real question, is a question of conversion so he says a theist and an atheist are basically the same thing. Mm, 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 mm. That's good. That's very good. That's very helpful. I want to ask you now about uh, a person you, you compare to Pascal in the book, um, Blondel, who is seems extremely important um, to 20th century Catholic theology, rivaled only by Shavara. Uh, who you also treat um, in terms of like people that are not household names, but actually influenced um, many theologians who came after them. Uh, so I, I'm going to ask you about both of them, but let me start with Blondell. And you characterize Blondell in this book, Action, but you focus on history and dogma and the, the letter, the apologetic letter. I'm probably getting that wrong, but um, he is facing a sort of resurgence of neo-Thomism after Eterni Patris in the late 19th, early 20th century, 
but also with a new view of science and reason post-Kant and post the rise of the scientific method and all of its permutations and a sort of like history is its own unbroken chain of uh, necessary causality. And he's going to critique all of this in his own work, um, giving us another sort of philosophy that's at the same time uh, understanding of history. So could you, could you say more about uh, Blondell and, and uh, what role he plays for you? Well, I mean, he's just a beautiful thinker and I taught him a few times and one of the reasons I couldn't do the 20th century in one chapter is that, well, you know, okay, I'll start by talking about Blundell, and it really it took some time to kind of figure out how the best way to say what Blundell was doing, and then also to trace it to some extent through people like de Lubac and Balthazar. And yeah, he's absolutely an essential figure writing at this very important time, and he's frustrated with two sides of the debate. So. He doesn't think history can provide all of the answers that historians think it can provide for theology or for Christianity. Uh, and this is a time in which history is almost, you know, revered on the level that we would revere like genetics now or something. And um, and he's frustrated by kind of miracle apologetics that um, were popular uh, in certain Catholic circles that would uh, want to kind of prove the divinity of the Christian religion, the truth of Christian religion through appeal to these miracles. And he kind of mentions the sort of hermeneutic problem of belief in miracles. And so he um, really, um, yeah, I mean, I've always just loved Blondell and I wanted to say something about his contribution and to say, you know, why I thought his approach to this question was really kind of beautiful and, and helpful. And so he's, you know, one of the people in a way I couldn't really wait to get to. Although in another way, you know, it's almost easier to write about the people you don't like as much because you're like, okay, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta do this right and be sort of fair. And then you know, and then you get to someone like Blundell and it's like, oh, I just want everybody to love this person so much. And then there's a kind of difficulty of feeling like, well, you know, how do I do this in in a, a way that I'm not forgetting that not everyone loves Blundell as much as I do? <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you. Um, I, I want to ask you, I've already asked you about Karl Barth, but I'm going to ask you again, because um his statement about Shavara, you also treat um, Shavara's analogy of being as a major theological breakthrough, characterize Blondell and Shavara as sort of taking on projects that are as big in scope as Hegel while sort of resisting Hegel in both their own ways. So what's Shavara about with this analogy of being and why? And I asked this, I, I've been puzzling through this question since I first encountered this uh, some months ago, that Bart says that um, Shavara's analogy of being is of the Antichrist. So how do, can you explain this debate? Um, Bart, who is, as we already discussed, sees himself as definitely beginning with the word and then proceeding to uh, an ability to reason and take, casting himself as like an Anselm. Still, though, resists the analogy of being, which I take as a kind of way to say we can understand and see God by analogy through nature, through 
and ultimately even through sacramental um, life and so on with Shavara. So, yeah, could you say more about this? Because I'm still uncertain why Bart feels it so strongly. Well, um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so much has been written on this, and I first studied Shavara when I was over in Tübingen, Germany, with a Bartian who um, was uh, interested in Shavara named Hans Anton Dreves, and the other American in this kind of study group was John Betts, who went on to translate Shivara and has become the great sort of Shivara expositor and very responsible for the Shivara Renaissance in the last 10 or 15 years, which I mentioned in the footnotes of the book. But I mean, Bart makes that claim, and I think he's more worried about kind of Protestants doing natural theology than what Shivara is actually saying. And um, yeah, but the, the debate was has uh, been told to me by my own Catholic teachers in the 90s, you know, Bart really got the better of the debate and Shavara is not really worth it. And um, yeah, and I was lucky to be close to this, you know, Shavara renaissance. And so that was a, it's an enormously difficult book. And having really failed entirely to understand it the first time I read it in German, you know, I kind of, I did a Shavara reading group on Zoom a few years ago. And we went through the analogy of Intus and uh, the analogy of being book that he wrote. And then just sort of going in and taking a small section of his argument on faith and reason was incredibly illuminating. And he has almost a, you know, the way physicists talk about like string theory. I think I compared it to this in, in the book where um, it's like an, a, an expanding and contracting accordion. And you can imagine faith and reason in this way. So instead of like sort of stable entities occupying a kind of territory, almost using this, you know, Shavara talks all the time about musical analogies and rhythm and stuff like this. And so imagining faith and reason almost in a kind of dance was uh, was very helpful. And in a lot of ways, you know, I could have just ended the book there. And I think Shavara's answer to the question of how faith and reason relate is a kind of like peak or in a way a kind of conclusion where I didn't see anyone after saying anything better than this in a way. (laughs) Um, But people saying uh, interesting things um, about it in, in, in a different key but yeah, Shivara, that, that was an experience I wasn't quite expecting when I said, I've got to say something about Shivara in here because he's so important to the 20th century. And so many people have kind of written him out of the story of 20th century theology and uh, to great detriment that I wanted to say something about him. And then I didn't realize how much I would agree with what he was saying. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, a big fan of Shavara was uh, von Balthasar, and uh, you you talk about von Balthasar's um, turn to the aesthetics, um, and of course his rapprochement with Bart in a lot of ways. But then you conclude with this very interesting assessment. I didn't note the page number, but uh, at the end of your section on Balthasar, you say uh, Balthasar is probably closer to Rahner than to Bart. Balthasar modifies the Renarian and in parentheses, and Blondelian and Pascalian position by insisting on the priority of God's word through a dramatic approach that sprinkles the Bartian uh, dust on a traditionally Catholic position. 
So I found that uh, an intriguing statement, and I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit. Um, how exactly uh, you see this trajectory of Rahner, Blondell, Pascal, and then um, Balthazar taking that up with the, well, and that's on page 278, 279. How, how you see Balthazar taking up that position and um, with a little bit of prior to God's word, Bartinism uh, overlaid on top. Yeah, I mean, Sh- uh, Balthazar calls Shavara his great teacher. And so in a way, the kind of Shavara renaissance has been driven by the Balthazar renaissance. And Balthazar, you know, like Karl Barth, loved music. They connected over their love of Mozart, and they were both Swiss or spent a lot of their time in Switzerland. And so Balthazar wrote an important book on Karl Barth, The Theology of Karl Barth. And Balthazar had a famous disagreement with Rahner right around 1970. I think it was in Cordula, one of his writings, where he's upset at the post-Vatican II environment. He doesn't like Rahner's anonymous Christian, and he thinks there's some real mistakes in Rahner. And so when I was in graduate school, it was really like the Balthazarians and the Rahnerians were uh, kind of like at odds. And if you liked Rahner, you couldn't like Balthazar and vice versa. And then the curious thing is that uh, most of the people I went to graduate school with were Catholic, not all of them. But we all, no matter what what we were, <laughs> we all just went to um, Andover Newton Seminary and took George Hunsinger's classes on BART. And he would do these at the end of the you know sp- spring semester, and you could just intensively read BART for a week or two. And people said that how great this is and how wonderful it was. And so everyone was so enthusiastically Bartian. And um, yeah, and so in a way, you could see a kind of pattern with what I was trying to do with Bonaventure and Aquinas earlier, which is that sometimes people's, you know, this is a Girardian insight, but similarity, not difference, causes conflict. So we're used to thinking in another way, there's a kind of clash of civilizations, people are so different, they can't a lot. A lot of times it's similarity, the closer people are getting to one another, then the differences are highlighted. And so Balthazar and Rahner are both Jesuits, they're both deeply formed by Ignatian spirituality. And I think on that basis, the disagreements they had, it was almost like since they shared so much else in common, it's almost like, how come you can't, aren't with me on this last step? And it obviously bothered Balthazar quite a bit. But it's just simply the case that uh, I'd forgotten that formulation when you said it. And uh, I'm sort of embarrassed because I feel like you know the book better than I do at this point. (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, Yeah. And it's just the case that Balthazar is on the whole theologically closer to Rahner and since the you know faith and reason relationship is so fundamental in theology, it's not surprising that their account of the relationship between faith and reason is closer to one another than either of them, especially Balthazar, is to Karl Barth on this question. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that insight. So Blondell is laying out what you talk about as a sort of a theory of imminence um, that leads him to be able to parse out in a very careful way the the subjectivity inherent in faith within a um, 
an account of reason that requires such subjectivity. And that eminence is important for Shavara for, and I think for Pascal too, um, within the just going, I wouldn't have made this particular genealogical connection that you made here. And I, I really like it, actually. Um, it's very clarifying. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and the other major, um, well, we've got Shavara, Lonergan, Rahner, and Baltazar, all Jesuits in the 20th century. <laughs> uh, and it's funny to me, it's always been interesting to me that Lonergan, as you put on your book, is often lumped together with Rahner in surveys uh, as just like a another transcendental Thomas, but he's really doing something very different. After an intense study of Thomas, he's providing a whole theory of cognition. And 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 he wasn't, um, he's not treated in depth that I can see by Baltazar or Rahner. He's in the U.S. and they're in Germany. They interact with him a little bit, but he's, he doesn't feature in people's minds as like a big, He's not fighting with Bart, Baltazar, Rahner as much as they are with each other. He's just doing his own thing, is my perception. And But you point out that in recent times, his version of taking taking the old, taking Thomism and bringing it into a modern key has sort of held enthusiasm. I never had as much sway as Rahner, Rahner's did, but since Rahner, since post-modernity has critiqued this whole sort of um, modern reason project that assumes a sort of uh, universal reason uh, that is um, undermined by the people who held that you could have such a universal reason and yet had a very particular reason. Lonergan's account um, has continued to have enthusiastic proponents in a way that Rahner's maybe hasn't. So what, what, what about Lonergan is so appealing to people today? Well, um, I think um, there's something of going through insight and seeing the different steps he takes in insight and the way he offers this very compelling cognitional theory that ends in a sort of proof of the existence of God, uh, a very quite compelling proof. Um, there's a way in which if you kind of go up that mountain, you know, if you do this sort of Lonergan triathlon or whatever the best metaphor is for it, <laughs> it's almost a, wow, we've made it to the top. And I see so much else more clearly mm -hmm. that I just kind of want to rest here and continue to have this kind of terminology and, you know, quote unquote, insight into things. And so I've always had a kind of love-hate relationship with Lonergan by being at Boston College, you know, for my PhD program, where a lot of people were enthusiastic, Lonergan, Lonergan, go, go, go. And I mean, I took my seminars with Lonergan people and with, you know, and on like a single book of Lonergan. And I always appreciated it and quite liked Lonergan. I just wanted to talk about and read other things. And so my model of Lonergan scholar, who I mentioned and praise profusely in the acknowledgments, is Fred Lawrence, who mm -hmm. also, I mean, he studied with Lonergan in Rome alongside David Tracy and Matt Lamb. And then Lonergan told, you know, his best students, you need to go to Europe and understand what's happening with continental thought. Mm -hmm. So Fred Lawrence went to Basel and took three seminars with Karl Barth there. 
So he knew Bart's thought very well. And then he would go and travel to Heidelberg for Gautamer's seminars. And he tried to bring Gautamer and Lonergan together in his dissertation. And to me, that was always like the peak of the Lonergan project Mm -hmm. is the kind of stuff that David Tracy and Fred Lawrence and later like Sean Copeland and Joe Kamonchak and Ecclesiology were doing. And, uh, and that I, I get that Lonergan's hard and there's need to kind of get it right. And the study of Lonergan has very much been hurt by people who get Lonergan wrong. Um, but uh, so, I mean, but I was sort of frustrated by encountering, you know, some Lonergan people who was just like, okay, we talked about Lonergan this week. Can we talk about something else? Like there are other pe- interesting people who have something to say. Mm-hmm. And so, um that, that was sometimes frustrating because Fred Lawrence, again, was the model to me who was so widely read and yeah. say interesting things about these other people. So, yeah, but I, I think Lonergan's absolutely great, no doubt a first-rate theologian and one of the five or six most important theologians to understand in the 20th century precisely because he can be more helpful. And I see Rahner's contribution mostly in the investigations is being like a massively learned person mm. who could enter different discussions and say something really helpful and interesting on all of these different questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the sort of philosophical basis of his thought and you know the way it was told to me, well, you need to go read Spirit in the World and Hears of the Word and get this kind of Kantian Heideggerian stuff that's totally unclear and not at all well-written in my opinion <laughs> and then you do like foundations of christian faith it sort of builds on it but this late thing and I, I just i i don't think um that is super appealing mm-hmm. um and i think it explains a lot of the loss of interest in Rahner. but his contribution in these other areas is really so great and so if you want to kind of i don't know in a way i think uh, lonergan is just more helpful to like have as a philosophical whatever background, but Rahner is better at kind of getting you into certain questions. Thank you for that. I, that's very helpful. And I want to, I want to, I want to, you've got a chapter on um, the post modernity um, that comes after this the- theology after modernity. Is it really helpful chapter in as much as you treat some sort of like radical critiques of theology um, postmodern critiques of Kantianism and so on. You also talk about McIntyre and radical orthodoxy, and situating those movements together was helpful to me. Um, someone who knows them, but not thinking through how they relate to each other, was really helpful. But I want to uh, focus in and ask you about um, Jean Luc Marion. You, you you characterize him at the end of your treatment of him as. Um, you say he, perhaps more than any contemporary figure, feels liberated on the basis of certain postmodern philosophical breakthroughs to stake out new terms for negotiating the relation between faith and reason. And by doing so, he comes closest to realizing, at least within a postmodern horizon, a new kind of synthesis, one upon which a number of phenomenologically minded theologians have built and continue to build. So that's a fairly positive assessment of Marion. And um, I, I enjoyed that. I'm I, he was instrumental for my conversion. I went to one of his lectures. Um, so I, I have a special fondness for him, uh, although I don't pretend to fully understand what he's up to, <laughs> um, especially not based on his lectures. But um, 
But yeah, could you say a little bit about uh, Marion's phenomenological project? And uh, I was struck as I read it um, how it, you know, he's critiquing Thomas's uh, uh, insistence on being. He's wanting to talk more about God as love. And that seemed to be similar to something that Scotus is talking about. It also seemed a little bit similar to Bonaventure. It also goes back to Augustine, but also it's different than all those things. So I, I wonder if you just say more about Marion and his um, project in this respect. Yeah, in a way, like if you read Bonaventure's Journey of the Mind to God, you know, he goes up these different scales and then he gets to the fifth step is God as being. And then the sixth step is God as love. You know, so God is in a way kind of beyond being. And this is what Marion tries to imagine in the book that got everyone excited about Marion called God Without Being. Mm-hmm. So I, um, yeah, it would be helpful to say something about the structure of that chapter. Yeah. yeah. To kind of talk about the postmodern breakthrough and basically. I kind of, you know, I described postmodernity in the most laconic way I could, and then talked about this sort of pre-modern retrieval mode of postmodernity. So people that reject kind of modern rationality and centering the subject and valuing objectivity, and um, and uh, and so. And those were Marione and Radical Orthodoxy and McIntyre. And then I talked about mm-hmm. a kind of critical liberationist postmodernity, which I read more as having a you know, very p- kind of powerful critique of the tradition insofar as the tradition was not liberative, kind of, you know, sort of ethical framework <laughs> yeah. for reading mm-hmm. it. You know, curiously, even though that section's only, you know, eight or 10 pages, um, it got a few people very, very up in arms about what I was saying there, even though I tried to uh, say it as charitably as, as possible. And uh, yeah, but clearly, you know, I, I find an appeal in this retrievalist postmodern mode of doing things. And um, these, I, you know, took sat in on a seminar with Marion when he was a guest guest professor at Boston College, and um, mm-hmm. I, you know, radical orthodoxy. I kind of discovered very early, and so I just wanted to say something about their contributions. And I, you know, I really like and admire a lot of what Marion's doing. Now there are other French phenomenologists who are doing similar things, and I didn't, you know, talk about. Michel Henri and those, those are the kind of people that some people find more valuable. But I, I just, you know, I've read and I've taught Marion and sort of s- sat with him intermittently for 20 plus years. And I, you know, I like his project. I think it's valuable. And it, the main thing is that it shows there's a different way to kind of do this than the ways that have gone prior. And so he's doing it through phenomenology and what I hope I'm sort of gesturing at saying without saying in the book is that it's okay that different approaches are used to synthesize or relate faith to reason. We don't need to yeah. simply say because someone did it this one way before that this is the only way it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Let me follow up. Uh, you said you've got some controversy on this section uh, of for the critical liberationist part. Like uh, people 
thinking you give too much value to that? Are people saying you critique some aspects of it or what's the, what's the pushback then? Yeah. So it's called postmodern theology as liberationist and counter traditionalist. Um, I sort of struggled with that subtitle. I was going to say anti traditionalist, um, but I, in a, in a way, it is recovering a tradition. And I talk about, um, you know, I've kind of been troubled by some of the arguments that I've come across mm-hmm. um, within this camp of theology, speci- especially because it has become so mainstream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just talk about, you know, some of the kind of claims that are made in a few authors who have a lot of good things to say and who I agree with. And I'm, you know, very sympathetic to liberation theology in the sense that the gospel is liberative and uh, it can't just be about sort of individual, you know, uh, sort of isolated um, introverted conversion experiences, but also has to undo unjust social structures. And so I agree with all that. It's just a question of whether there can be other types of theology that aren't saying this exact thing and how they can be useful. So you know, I talk a little bit about Jay Cameron Carter's book, Race, a Theological Account, mm-hmm. and I talk about a cu- couple of essays and I mentioned Mary Daly's work in the 70s. And she just as people who, who very, um, you know, much capture this certain kind of spirit of uh, a kind of theological attitude towards tradition and the implications of what they're saying towards the theological tradition. It's almost instead of trying to reconcile faith with reason, it's a kind of reconciliation of faith with uh, an ethical ideal. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, re- I respect and like certain aspects of the project. Other parts of it, I, I think um, people haven't really sufficiently grappled with the consequences of the claims that they're making. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, you know, I kind of hi- highlight some of that, um, but I thought it was an important way to introduce some of the key parts of like contemporary theological discourse in a book that's really, you know, looking back and mostly about retrieval of figures like, you know, Eugena and Boethius yeah, yeah. and uh, Scotus <laughs> and people that people just don't read there very much anymore. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, and I, it's just sort of funny that at a couple of the reviews and you know people have kind of latched onto this in a very positive way, and then I've I've heard sort of indirectly through the grapevine that certain people are very unhappy with I wrote with, with what I wrote there, and so. Um, but I, I do, you know, the next theological project is on tradition, and so I'll, in a way, I'll sort of build out those eight pages into a kind of argument that I hope people can see you know sort of more accurately where i stand that's great that's great i look forward to it. what's the next book going to be about so it's basically um t- dealing with this kind of problem or this paradox of tradition and there's been a lot of stuff on tradition recently i mean david yeah. hart has a book uh, tradition and apocalypse and carpenter mm-hmm. has a very good book nothing gained is eternal a theology of tradition and they both mm-hmm. actually talk about blundell um, yeah 
one much more positively than the other. Um, yes. <laughs> and um, although Hart, Hart, I read this and he was nicer to Blondell than he was to anyone else in that book. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever that says. Um, so, uh, but um, I'm interested basically in you know what kind of recovering what the Catholic theology of tradition is or should be. And specifically, the idea of a living tradition, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. it means to be part of a living tradition. And, uh, and so if you contrasted like Catholicism with Platonism, you know, what makes it different? Yeah. Well, Platonism, and you just have this relationship to texts, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so people like Novalis and, and others in the 19th century, they say, well, the problem with Protestantism is it turns theology into philology. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. all you're doing is basically interpreting text. Mm-hmm, and um, and that there's a Catholic version of this, which is just what Rahner called Denzinger theology. You yeah. know, it's just basically, <laughs> you know, instead of it just being the Bible, you have your papal documents and your conciliar texts and your whatever, you, the theologians who are always right and never wrong. And that that's simply all you're doing is kind of textualism. And um, and instead, you know, I'm interested in what they offer as an alternative, which is this idea of a living tradition, mm-hmm. what it means to be part of a living tradition. And this discussion of a living tradition has kind of been picked up by um, people like Gautamer and Alistair McIntyre and others. And there's been a lot of good, good social scientific work on, you know, tradition and historians, even like someone like Eric Hobsbawm has this notion of invented tradition. He's a Marxist historian, but invented traditions. And uh, and so I kind of want to pair that with what I consider to be a kind of radical critique of tradition. And it's not new, this critique. It's just sort of mainstreamed. Yeah. And so if you have a tradition that is, for instance, scholasticism, you know, only men were allowed to be scholastics. And so there's a problem with that tradition and that it excluded women's voices systematically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so uh, the, the, is it rotten to the core? Yeah. You know, or is the meta, is a better metaphor like, is it sort of ivy, a colonialism or something like this? Willie mm-hmm. Jennings, you know, is, is there sort of an ivy of colonialism that's strangling the Christian plant and you need to kind of prune the ivy off? And this can be kind of painful because it almost seems like it's part of the plant. Or is it like mold in a bread where the colonialism or the sexism or the patriarchy or whatever, the heteronormativity, all these things are so embedded in the tradition that it's like mold in a bread where it starts someplace and you say, there's a green thing. But the mold is, in fact, entirely in the bread and you don't cut off the moldy part and say the rest of it's fine. You throw the bread in the garbage. Mm -hmm. So what I'm interested in is basically like the consequences. I mean, the critiques are pretty clear and obvious moral critiques. And I think they should bother any Christian with a moral conscience. But the question is what, what's the impact or what's the result of it? Mm -hmm. And clearly for a lot of people, you know, um, they read the critiques and they say, yeah, throw the whole thing out. Yeah. Throw the bread in the garbage. It's it's rotten all the way through, and others say, "Well, no, 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 no. That's not really what we're saying. We're not against the tradition. We're just trying to improve it." But what I'm interested in is kind of like why 
other people are reading it and thinking that they can throw out the whole thing. Like, mm -hmm. why is this a logical implication for them? So I kind of want to bring that discourse together with the whole living tradition yeah. and to sort of see how um, they uh, these two conversations, when brought together, whether or not it can kind of yield something. That's great. Great. That's going to be very fascinating. I love this uh, as a project. And when... Uh, when can I read that? Is that coming out sometime soon? Or is this, is this oh, yeah, I, I wish. <laughs> yeah, five, I'm not a, uh, five years not or so. Yeah. David Hart level or a Matt Levering, you know, the books uh, already <laughs> in the presses. So, yeah, I'm, I just finished um, a, an edited volume, a co-edited volume, Oxford History of Modern German Theology. Mm -hmm. So that'll be out in the summer. We sent back the corrected proofs a couple weeks ago, doing a translation, a long translation of a 19th century German Catholic theologian, Johann Adam Muller, um, whose student, Johannes Kuhn, gets a little chapter in the book. Yeah, yeah uh, it's very fascinating. Reason. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and so the Tradition Project, it gave four papers on tradition uh, in 2022, and overall they kind of went pretty well, and I will get back to the project, I think, this summer, and I hope you know, the book will be out like 2025, 2026. Great. Great. Well, Grant, thank you very much. We, uh, we could have talked to a lot of, a lot of other people that you dealt with very well. I found your, your chapter on Newman very fascinating. Of course, Kuhn was totally new to me. I'd never heard him before reading your book. So that was a great, uh, intro to him. So yeah, to anyone listening, this book is, uh, really helpful, uh, well-written and, um, a great roadmap. Uh, of course, Grant, you, you say in the intro and in the conclusion, you, you had to make choices and um, you left a lot of people out that you would like to talk about. It's certainly not a, an attempt to be comprehensive about anyone who's ever said anything about faith and reason. But that said, uh, as you walk through all of these periods, I found it very orienting, like I said, and, and very helpful uh, throughout. So thank you very much. And thanks for talking to us about it. Sure. I'm honored that you read it and that you uh, asked me such good questions about it and that you that you liked it and found it well written. So I'm very pleased and uh, I hope it's a book that your readers could enjoy. Yep. All right. Thanks very much. St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry is a Catholic graduate school in Rochester, New York. We offer courses in Rochester, Albany and Buffalo, New York, as well as Allentown, Pennsylvania and online from anywhere in the world. Our master's degrees and certificates focus on theological studies, Catholic philosophy, biblical studies, pastoral studies, bioethics, and evangelization. Thank you for listening.